Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, a CME podcast series where each week we translate today's late-breaking clinical research and news into tomorrow's practice. I'm Frank Domino, professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and editor-in-chief of the 5-Minute Clinical Consult series. Be sure to visit primed.com podcast after the discussion for more information about today's article and to claim CME-CE credit. Rachel brings her four-month-old daughter in for a well-child check. The infant is healthy and between the 50th and 75th percentiles for both height and weight. At this point, she's been exclusively breastfed, and you congratulate her. Rachel asks about the introduction of solid foods, and in particular, about introducing uh, gluten-based foods. She says she's very confused by what she's read online, and some sites have encouraged her to introduce gluten early, while others say to wait till the baby is 6 or even 12 months of age. She's worried because her father was diagnosed with celiac disease, and she understands that there's some hereditary component. She asks for your advice. Hi, this is Frank Domino, family physician and professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Joining me today to talk about gluten and celiac disease is Alan Ehrlich, associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and executive editor at Dynamed. Alan, thank you very much for coming today. Thanks, Frank. Well, happy to be here. That's great. Um, so before we get into the details about feeding for Rachel's child, um, can you just remind us a little bit about uh, what celiac disease is and why it's become so important? Well, celiac disease is often thought of as a gastrointestinal disorder, but it's actually a fairly serious autoimmune disorder for which the gastrointestinal tract is one of the more prominent areas that are affected, but it's not the only one. In order to get celiac disease, one has to be exposed to gluten, uh, but that exposure is not enough. There's also a genetic component, and we're not quite sure why some people with the genetic predisposition develop celiac disease and others do not. But for those who do develop celiac disease, gluten ingestion serves as a trigger for a variety of symptoms that can be uh, most commonly gastrointestinal, such as diarrhea or vomiting, uh, but it can also be uh, neurologic symptoms and other uh, manifestations such as uh, derm- dermatitis herpetiformis and, and other skin disorders. Even anemia, I've understood. So it does lead to uh, an iron deficiency anemia, often from poor absorption uh, related to inflammation of the gastrointestinal tract. You're right about that. So um, what is the uh, effect of timing Uh, of gluten exposure on infants and and its relationship to celiac disease. So this is something that's been looked at quite a bit, and the data is not completely consistent. There have been some studies that seem to suggest earlier is better, and some suggest that waiting and not introducing gluten till uh, a later age for the infants uh, decreases risk. There was recently a paper that wanted to look at this, and it came out of some researchers in Norway. They had a nationwide database. And what they did was they looked at mother-baby dyads and tracked them over time. And what they did was to, they surveyed the mothers at around six months of age and then around 18 months of age about the exposure of various foods to the babies. And what they found was that what correlated 
with the development of celiac disease was how much gluten the child was eating at around 18 months of age. What they found when they looked at the introduction of gluten, at what age did that matter, they actually found if gluten was introduced after six months, there was a significantly higher risk of celiac disease than if it was introduced before that. So for, th for this paper, what they found was it's not so much what age you're introducing it as the uh, amount of gluten the child's having in the toddler years, but if you're looking at when should gluten be introduced, sooner is, rather, is better rather than later. It, in some ways, it reminds me of the whole peanut allergy thing. It's quite analogous. Wow. So, so two key points from that study. One is that the amount of gluten at 18 months seemed to have the strongest effect on future development of celiac disease. And the other is start before six months. Does that sound about right? That sounds about right. There are some caveats that I'd like to just introduce. First of all, the magnitude of the effect. So for the introduction of uh, gluten at before or after six months, the risk ratio was 1.34, which means there's about a 34% increased risk, but again, the risk is still low. For the amount of gluten eaten at age 18 months, it was about a 10% increased risk. Now, all, all dietary studies have a certain amount of uh, recall bias risk. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is that when you talk about a high amount of gluten and a low amount of gluten, it's really the difference between four slices of bread and one or two slices of bread. And so it's not as if it's no uh, gluten at all versus someone who's eating a loaf of bread every day. Wow. Okay. So um, can you talk a little bit about some of the other risk factors that go into the development of celiac disease? So as I mentioned, you have to have a genetic predisposition. The most common commonly looked for genetic markers are HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8. And if you have those, then you can develop celiac disease. If you don't have those, you have virtually no chance. Of those who have those genetic markers, the vast majority will not go on to develop celiac disease. So we know that that is necessary, but it's not sufficient. There is some sort of environmental trigger, whether it be a virus or whatever. So certainly family history uh, is a component to risk. Other things, though, uh, it is an autoimmune disorder, and it runs with other autoimmune disorders. Patients who have type 1 diabetes are at increased risk for celiac disease, as are patients who've had Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Also, uh, people with Down syndrome uh, have a higher rate of celiac disease than the general public. So there are these other components. We're not really sure what the pathway is, but uh, it's certainly worth being aware Probably the strongest thing to keep in mind is family history, just as Rachel is a little bit concerned in, in our well, case. Ra Rachel and her baby are one of my favorite pa patients in the practice, so I am curious how we should counsel her today. Well, I think the general advice would be that you don't need to wait to introduce gluten, but you might want to think about limiting the amount of gluten over the course of the childhood years. Now. I, I do want to point out that they measured celiac disease at age seven to eight of the kids. And you can develop celiac disease at any age, and it's probably about a quarter of people are being diagnosed well into adulthood. So um, when should Rachel introduce some gluten? I would probably suggest four to six months is the right time frame. Four to six uh, months. Continuing to breastfeed, it's not a question of substituting a solid food and stopping breastfeeding. There are benefits to breastfeeding that certainly carry on to six months and beyond. 
Now, Rachel asks because she's a bit worried. Her dad has celiac disease. Should we be doing any testing on her? Who should be screened for celiac disease is a uh, controversial question. First-degree relatives cer certainly should be offered the opportunity to be screened, but it's unclear if screening makes a difference. We haven't proven that. Uh, certainly, people with type 1 diabetes should be monitored for the potential development of celiac disease, and if they have symptoms, they certainly should be investigated. I think what I would say is people with the risk factors should certainly have aggressive case finding where uh, there's a high index of suspicion for working them up for celiac disease. Whether they should have outright screening, I think, is a choice. Many people who are at risk don't want to be screened because they're afraid that they'll have to go on a gluten-free diet and they don't want that, and it's somewhat counterproductive, but you have to think, am I really helping this person live a better life if I screen them? And it's not 100% clear right now. Okay, so um, just to finish up, if I were thinking of testing a patient that I had a high suspicion in, what should I do with regards to testing? To test if someone has celiac disease, you're looking for uh, IgA uh, for uh, trans... Uh, glutaminase. So anti-TTG is the standard way to screen. If you want to show someone doesn't have celiac disease, you can do the genetic testing because if that's negative, then they're in the clear. So someone like Rachel who doesn't have symptoms, if she wanted to just have that genetic testing to feel uh, more secure, that would be an option. But in general, that's not done. Uh, if people aren't having symptoms, we generally leave them alone. All right. So to summarize, it sounds like Rachel should introduce um, gluten-based foods between four and six months. She should continue to keep breastfeeding. And should she develop symptoms, she should let us know, and then we can consider doing some testing. Absolutely. And the same thing, you know, if the baby uh, suddenly starts falling off of growth curves, then testing for celiac disease would be a, uh, an important thing. Failure to thrive in children is a common presentation. Alan, thanks so much. Thanks, Frank. Practice pointer, introduce gluten-based foods in children aged four to six months of age and avoid large amounts of gluten-based foods in a children's diet uh, at age 18 months. Both will help lower the risk of that child developing celiac disease. Join us next time while we discuss a change in how we approach patients with acute COPD exacerbations around the use of antibiotics and CRP testing. Thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking About Family Medicine, brought to you by PrimeMed. To claim credit and receive additional information about the article referenced in today's episode, visit primemed.com slash podcast and see you next week.